looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Pete. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 74 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for another effing amazing episode. That's right, I said effing, because my guest today is Eric Peterson, star of AMC's Kevin Can F Himself. Kevin himself, Eric Peterson is here. Can you believe it? That's right. So I'm giving you an F alert. We're going to be saying the real word a little later on. So either get the earmuffs on or put the headphones on if you're at work, because we're going to be calling the show out by name later. Fair warning. Spoiler. Eric Peterson is amazing. He hung with me. We talked all about his career. He started in Broadway. He was Dewey on School of Rock. He was Shrek in Shrek the Musical on Broadway in the touring company. We talk about how he literally transformed into Shrek. An amazing story. We talk about his sitcom experience on Modern Family. He was on the episode of Big Bang Theory when Sheldon and Amy kissed for the first time. He had a huge role on that episode. So cool. Great story. We talk about his work on the sitcom Kirsty on TV Land. And of course, we wrap it all up with Kevin Kniff himself, the big hit show right now on AMC with Annie Murphy. So many great stories coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to take a second to thank everyone who likes and subscribes and follows the show on their favorite podcast app. Here's a few suggestions for you. Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, wherever you so desire. I'm everywhere. Can you believe it? I'm everywhere. I know, it's spooky. When you listen to an episode, I'd love to hear from you. Tweet at me at Jeff DeWoskin Show on Twitter or reply to one of my posts on Instagram at Jeff DeWoskin Show. Love to hear from you. I'll respond for sure. Also, if you want, head on over to jeffisfunny.com. That's home of all the episodes. And there's a link to Crossing the Streams, which is my live show that I do every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Here's an exciting thing. We're now streaming Crossing the Streams live on Fireside app as well. That's right. We're live on Fireside. That way, if you're listening on Fireside, you can actually come onto the stage and talk to us about the show that we're discussing. So that's a new thing that we're testing out. So definitely come check that out. Also exciting news, I have to say. I'm going to be at the Motor City Comic Con October 15th and 16th. On the 16th, which is a Saturday, I'm actually, I am running two panels for the Motor City Comic Con, one with Patrick Renna from the Sandlot and David Yost from the Power Rangers. So if you're in the Detroit area, definitely check me out at the Motor City Comic Con. Oh, who could be calling me? Hello? Oh, hello, Jeff. Oh, hello, it's Shrek. I'm calling because word on the street is Eric Peterson is on your show. He is, I guess word's getting around, huh? He spent a lot of time impersonating me. I got all the fairy tale creatures looking for him. Oh, we're all gonna come find you. I don't know what it's gonna take, but you better believe. Watch out, Eric. Oh, and we're going to help too. Us, the three of us, are going to find him. We'll find you, Eric, and then maybe we'll make you a dinner. No, we won't make him dinner. We are trying to hunt him down. Oh, yeah, for the money he owes for Shrek. Yeah, we're coming for you. And even I, Lord Farquaad, will find my way along with this rabble to make sure that we do not allow Eric Peterson to get away with this yet again. I need you to send him a message. Tell him he can't hide from me. I don't think he's hiding from you, Shrek. (laughs) Ha ha! And I will join the fray as well. For what is an adventure without poos and boots? 
I, we are coming for you, Eric. We will find you. We will track you down to the ends of the earth. If I am not as good as my sword and skill. I'm sure this is just a misunderstanding. I've got credit card bills I can't pay. 300 million gumdrop buttons? Poor Gingy is a wreck. Oh, and he bought up all the gumdrop buttons. <laughs> 20 kilos of pixie dust. That's a lot of pixie dust. And dragon be gone. Do you know how this made Donkey feel? Very insensitive. I mean, that's my baby. That's my dragon. Dragon be gone. You're talking about getting rid of half my kids? Man, that's just mean. I don't understand why I do that. Shrek wouldn't do that. I'm sure he didn't mean anything, Donkey. He charged up like a hundred bazillion dollars in my name and then skipped town. A hundred bazillion? Fiona kicked me out, so now I'm living in a swamp. You always lived in a swamp. Oh, that's not the point. The point is, you tell that Eric Peterson that I'm looking for him. Goodbye. Oh, this sounds like a huge misunderstanding, but I'll have to bring it up with Eric later after the interview. But in the meantime, it's time for the social media tip. This is one of my favorite parts of the show where I get to share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little something I picked up on the street, the 411, so that we can all raise our social game together. This week's tip is on tips on Twitter. That's a lot of T's. But yes, it's true. Twitter rolled out tipping to every profile. So if you go to your mobile profile, it has to be mobile because apparently people don't tip on desktop. It's just the way it is. I can't explain it. But if you go to your profile on mobile and click edit profile under your birthday, it'll say tips and it'll say off. And if you click on it, you can turn it on. You can set up Venmo. You can have people send you Bitcoin. It's great. So now you can get tipped for tweeting amazing tweets. Step one, tweet amazing tweets. Step two, reap the rewards, baby. That's right. Set it up. Can't hurt. No one ever uses it. They don't use it. If they do, great. You get a buck. Whatever. It's fun. Enjoy it. And that's the social media tip. Boom. I do want to take a quick second to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show, and that means the world to us. This week's sponsor, The Glazed Hole, where the donuts are always fresh and delicious. Yum. Skip the supermarket and head over to The Glazed Hole where you'll get lost in their over 500 varieties of donuts. You haven't had a donut until you've had a glazed hole. Donut. Special podcast deal. Buy a dozen for only $5.99 or one dozen donut holes for $2.99. Just use the offer code Jeff is funny. A dozen holes for $2.99. They're practically giving them away. Glaze the holes, sprinkle the holes, get them cream filled. However you like your holes, you get them. Fresh and yummy. And perfect with a frosty beverage or a cup of their fresh hot coffee. Stop by the glazed hole today and treat yourself to a glazed hole donut. All right. Sounds delicious. I'm kind of hungry right now. So I think I'm going to go grab something to eat. And it also seems like the perfect time to now share my interview with Eric Peterson with you. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest star of stage and TV. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Eric Peterson. How are you, sir? Hey, Jeff. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, so great to have you. It's an exciting time, right? I mean, <laughs> it is. Huge show. Kevin can, do you get yeah, around the set? Is it Kevin can fuck himself or just Kevin can F himself or you guys go in and out? We try to lean into the Kevin can fuck himself as much as we can. If we're ever on like live television, obviously we say Kevin can F himself, but Whenever possible, we're sort of encouraged and we have all sort of agreed to lean into the Kevin can fuck himself. That's amazing. <laughs> 
I love how, and I don't, maybe it's an AMC thing now that Vince Gillian started with Breaking Bad, but the beginning of the show is always different now, slightly different. Yeah. For those, uh, those people who have watched uh, Kevin Can Fuck Himself, our, one of my favorite parts is our title sequence is a little different every single time. And actually, they're very thoughtfully put together. Each one sort of is giving you clues as to like what the episode is about or an important moment in the episode. And they also sort of mess with how much we hear the laugh track, the sort of spooky laugh track in the intro, which is cool and is always sort of informing the, the audience that the laugh track is important in, for good and bad reasons, I would say. Right. And I, I want to talk all about Kevin can fuck himself because it's so amazing. But I want to I kind of go take a step back and work our way towards that. As I was digging into your career, you've got an amazing background. I will say I wasn't aware and then of your immense Broadway background, which is incredible. Yeah. And so I was, I was learning about that. And then something kind of hit me like, okay, you were in School of Rock. You played yep. Dewey, Dewey in School of Rock. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, my kids were in New York. They saw School of Rock. So I run and I grab the playbill. Yes. I have now, but here's the, here's the good news and the bad news. The good news <laughs> is I have a playbill that says Eric and it, it's you. Yes. It's like, it's all did great. You, did you see a matinee? But during, <laughs> there was a two week period where Alec Brightman returned. Oh, and that's, yes. And that that's is when, when my kids, it. that's when my kids saw it. Yes. So while I have the prince proof that you were there. <laughs> that I was in the show. Yeah. You know, it was great. Alex came back in because Alex had uh, originated the part and then I took over for him and I did the show for a year. The reason I was out in that time was I had a vocal hemorrhage. I like blew out my voice from doing the show. The show is extremely vocally challenging because not only are all the songs, you know, rock songs. So you're already stretching yourself in a, you know, a rock tenor place that's already going to be working the vocal cords quite a bit. But also every scene in that show, you're like, come on, kids, we got to go. We're going to get we got to be there for the battle of the pants. And so you're just like shredding your voice all all day long. So it was it was a very scary moment for me, actually, when it happened, because I had felt in completely perfect vocal health, like I was not feeling tired, didn't feel sick. Everything was feeling good. It was just a regular show. It was in the first I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was the first act. There's a scene where about halfway through the first act, Dewey comes into the teacher's lounge and he sees one of the other teachers and he says, what's up, my brother from another mother? And he gets a little like hand, you know, high five. And when I went to sing that, and it was like a little acapella moment, when I went to say, what's up? When I went for that, up, literally nothing came out of my voice. I didn't feel a pop. I didn't, it didn't hurt. It just was, I went to sing it and it was like dust. There was just no phonation of the vocal cord. And I was like, okay, that's weird. But it, again, didn't hurt or anything like that. It just was like, oddly, no sound was made. So I was like, what's up, mother? And I just kind of moved on and I was like, oh, that was odd. And then I got to, I think shortly after that is a song called Stick It to the Man, which is a very intense rock song to sing. As I was singing that, I noticed like a two or three note range near the top of my vocal range that like just I could feel the like phonation ability quickly dwindling. Like I was able to hit those notes, but it was getting harder. They were not coming out as strong. So it's kind of freaking out. I called my voice coach at intermission and I was like, told her exactly what was happening and what I felt. And she said, stop talking right now. Call out for the rest of the show and go to the doctor first thing in the morning. And I was like, 
okay. And so I did. And they were like, yeah, you had a vocal hemorrhage, which is essentially a broken blood vessel on your vocal cords. Luckily, mine was not terrible and it was only on one vocal cord. Sometimes people have full blown both cords just explode. I mean, not they don't actually explode, but the, you know, the blood vessels will break on both. So it was just one, but it, the recommendation from the doctors was you need to go on, I think it was like three or four weeks total vocal rest. So no talking, no whispering, literally no phonation at all. So I did that and uh, School of Rock was great to sort of give me the time off to do that because here's the other thing is that up to that point, other than maybe one of the Deweys, everyone that had played Dewey had had a vocal hemorrhage because it was, this part was just <laughs> so demanding. And a lot of them, Alex, I believe he had one as well. He had kind of rushed back and found that it was hard. And so they were trying to like give me the time to actually heal so that it wouldn't happen again. And thank God it didn't. But it was it was a, a scary moment. But that was probably the uh, couple of weeks that I was out of the show when when your family came to see it. Man, that must have been scary. Right? It was I scary because I think it, what's sc- what was most scary, again, it didn't hurt. I was just nervous, you know, when I wasn't nervous that I would never sing again, but I was nervous. What if my voice changes? Like, what if when it heals, somehow the tonality or the quality of my voice is different? And will that be as good? And will I like it? And will I have to adjust to that? And it also does give you sort of a moment, I feel like in, in life and especially as performers, we're like, go, 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 go. It was a moment that like forced me to step back, have some stillness, have some quiet and really reflect on like, this is what I do. And in a way, I think I had never taken myself incredibly seriously as like an artist or anything like that. But this was a moment that I kind of was like, yeah, I am like I, I am an artist and, and I have tools that I have to keep sharp. And if those tools don't work, i.e. my voice, I have no way to do what I do. And that's this is the only thing I do. It did arise some existential questions in my mind for those couple of weeks, but it was scary, but I thank God healed and everything went went back to normal. Well, thank goodness for that. Because you do have an amazing voice. That was, I don't want to say that surprised me, but like the Kevin <laughs> character doesn't scream, this guy's got a, a killer voice. Sure. This is not Broadway guy. Yeah. I saw that you sing Stick It to the Man. I think it did. was it the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that must have been a riot to do that. It was. Every, everyone wants to be in a parade, right? Yeah, it was great. You know, when we did that, it was for the uh, the CBS. So when you watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Broadway performances are usually at the beginning of the Macy's Day Parade, but they on CBS does a sort of alternate coverage, and so you can see a few shows if you switch back and forth between the channels. And ours was for the CBS coverage. And it was crazy, though. I mean, that song is really hard to sing. And I remember we filmed, they they make it seem as if you're filming it, that it's happening right on Thanksgiving, but it's not. We actually filmed a couple of days beforehand. And uh, don't tell anybody. We were recording it and I was, you know, they have cameras and so they can do all the dolly shots and everything. And I told him, I was like, first of all, we were recording it at maybe 6 a.m., like super, super early. And then on top of that, they were like, all right, we're going to do, you know, a bunch of takes. And I was like, just so you know, I can sing this song probably about, five times. If we get to like a sixth, seventh, eighth time of me singing this song, it's not going to sound as good. Like it, this is a really hard song to sing once a day, let alone multiple, multiple times a day. So I thought it did turn out pretty well, but there definitely were some, a few notes in there that I was like, oh man, they definitely used one of the later takes of that particular little sequence when we had done the song, you know, like the eighth or ninth time. And I was like, please don't make me sing this song anymore. It's so high. 
Oh, that's really funny. Oh, and speaking of which, of the pre-taping thing that you mentioned, mm-hmm. we used to take our kids to Disney World early yeah. December, the first week of December. And they do the parade. Right. It was pre, it's pre-Christmas, so it's not crazy. In that first week, it's, it's like a dead week. It's, yeah. really, it's a great week to go. But the Saturday that we would always arrive, they were finishing filming for the Christmas show that's live on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's pretty funny. Let's uh, go back even further. Sure. How does Eric from Carroll Stream, Illinois, yeah, grow up to be, <laughs> grow up to have one of the best Boston accents around? Thank you. I got to say, my buddy, I told him, I said, I'm talking to Eric. I'm talking to Kevin himself. And he says, tell him, tell Eric that I'm from Boston. And that is one of the best accents I've ever heard. It's spot on. That's amazing. That's the, like the best compliment you could give me. Because A, I love accents in general. Uh, I do a lot of them. Uh, I never done a Boston one before this show. So it was, I was nervous to do it because A, it is a, an accent that can be done poorly. And people talk about bad Boston accents more than other bad accents, I feel. I had sort of said to my wife, I was like, I just don't want to end up on a YouTube supercut of bad Boston accents which I saw plenty of when I was searching, you know, YouTube videos for how to do the Boston accent. So if your friend is is a legit uh, Bostonian and said that it was good, that makes me feel very good. I always imagined that the accent, the way that I, well, both the accent and the character of Kevin, and we will, I will answer your question, I apologize, is I always imagine him as a combination of Ralph Cramden and Peter Griffin from Family Guy. And so I feel like the accent is definitely born out of those two things, you know? The thing about Ralph Cramden is he sort of had a musicality, you know, one of these days, Alice, bings and boom, right to the moon. He had a lot of up and down with his voice, which I tried to keep in the role of Kevin. And then obviously the sort of just thick Seth MacFarlane Boston accent from Peter Griffin is is what I was going for 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 that part of it. Um, but yes, but to, to your question, how does some uh, a kid from Carroll Stream, Illinois get there? Basically... Yeah, I'm from Carroll Stream, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's about 30 minutes directly west of the city. Uh, I grew up doing, uh, I started doing theater in high school, kind of fell into it because I was always class clown. I was a goofball. I was always making people laugh, but I didn't necessarily think of being an actor as my profession or that's what I was going to do. But I fell into doing theater and loved it and was like, oh, these are, these are my people. This is my, this is my tribe. And uh, eventually went to school at a school called Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, a little liberal arts school. Had a great time there. Uh, studied theater there. And I graduated with the plan of moving out to Los Angeles to try to do TV and film. But I was going to do a summer in Michigan. Your Michigan. State. Yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, and I went to go work at the Barn Theater in Augusta, Michigan, uh, Southwest Michigan. Augusta's between Kalamazoo and Battle Creek. That's the oldest continually running resident summer stock theater in the country. I went to do that summer there thinking that I would just do that summer and move to LA. I met a girl there that summer uh, right after school and we started dating and I thought she was pretty great. And at the end of the summer, I asked her what she was doing after the summer was over and she said she was moving to New York. And I was like, that's crazy. I'm moving to New York as well. And I totally changed my plan and followed her to New York. And it was a good call because she's now my wife and we have two beautiful kids. So it was it was the right call to make. That's amazing. I feel like I need to ask you to say, uh, yes, sorry, guys, I got to see about a girl in a Boston accent. Yeah. Sorry, guys, I got to go see about a girl. That's exactly it is literally exactly what happened. We moved to New York and we lived there in New York for, uh, you know, about eight years and both were acting at the time and doing, you know, 
regional theater and off, off, off Broadway and children's musical theater and stuff like that. Uh, And then eventually my sort of Broadway career started to happen. My first Broadway show was Shrek, the musical. And I was in the Broadway company and then ended up playing the role of Shrek on the tour. And that ended up, the tour uh, ended in Los Angeles. And so we ended up moving to LA and then started doing more TV stuff from there. Talk to me about starring as Shrek and kind of stepping into like a such a well-known character. Like when they, they make these movies into plays yeah. and, you know, so I did see clips. So you pick, you did use the Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. You are the accent king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I've done, I've done quite a few. And, you know, as I think about it, played Shrek, which was obviously a famous movie. I did School of Rock, which was a famous movie. I've played Buddy the Elf in Elf the Musical, which was famous from Will Ferrell. So I have quite a few times uh, sort of stepped into roles that are iconic or, you know, legendary from the audience's point of view of what their past history with a part is or a, or a, a property, a, a, you know, a show. And what I've always found the thing to do and how I approached Shrek and School of Rock and Elf is you have to give an audience like kind of bench posts of things that they know from the movie or whatever that they are familiar with that they can sort of latch onto. And, you know, whether that be the Scottish accent or the, you know, being super grumpy or saying some of the lines that might be from the movie that are classic lines, you just say them exactly how they were said in the movie. Because some actors say like, no, I want to make it my own and and put my own spin on it, which there is plenty of time in a production to do that. But what an audience wants is to have an experience that makes them feel joyful and happy. And so when they go to see something like Shrek, they want to, you know, they want to hear Gingy say like, not my gumdrop buttons. Like they want to hear it just how it was said in the movie. They don't want to hear it differently because that's not what they came to see. And so, I, you know, I've always been a proponent of like the audience is the king and we are trying to make them happy or make them feel or challenge them. But like we do this for them, not for us. If we do a good job as performers, it fills us up. But we should be doing the job for them, is my opinion. Some people feel the exact opposite, but that's for me, I'm all about give it to the audience, give them what they want. So in regards to playing these sort of iconic characters that have been done before, that's what I try to do. I try to give them benchmarks of like, hey, this is something you recognize. This is something you recognize. But then in between, I can put my own spin on it. That's really cool. And I got to say, I, I Googled a, I don't remember what it was called. It was a behind the scenes Shrek. And it was yeah. you getting put into the makeup, Oh yeah. which for those listening, who have never seen Shrek the musical or want to Google this right after. I'll put a link to it. You literally became Shrek. I mean, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's yeah, not like the, they put a little green blush on your cheeks and said, yeah. go at it. I mean, you were freaking an ogre. <laughs> so the costume and makeup for Shrek, the, the makeup took two hours to put on every show. And that show I did, you know, eight shows a week. When we had two show days on uh, the matinee days, I would only put it on in the morning. And then after the show was over, I would stay at the theater in the Shrek head. I would take off the fat suit and then I would eat dinner in basically a robe and a Shrek head. And then we will put the costume back on for the second show. But I was doing that essentially five times a week, two hours in makeup. It was an hour to get out of the makeup. I wore a fat suit that weighed about 45 pounds. I had boots that had three inches of lift on them. I had big rubber gloves. So once I was encased in everything, the only part of my skin anywhere on my body that was touching the air was my eyelids and my upper lip. Every other part of my body and face were completely covered by either costume or latex. And so 
it was extremely hot. I lost about 40 pounds in the first like two months of doing the show. And I was eating like large deep dish pizzas every night by myself after the show. I was, I was pounding so many calories and the weight was just like falling off me because I, the costume was just so incredibly hot. But it was awesome. And once I was in it, it really, you know, it was it was hard not to really feel like Shrek and sort of just bound all around the backstage and like I'd go and pick kids up and stuff. It was great. I loved, loved, loved playing Shrek. It was a, a, a highlight of my career for sure. And one of the, the funniest little tidbits from that video I watched of you uh-huh. was you were telling a story about bumping into a friend that you've worked with for forever on the show. Oh, and yeah. he had no idea who you were because he had never seen you out of makeup. <laughs> yeah, it was this guy named uh, Jason who he had joined the show just after we opened. And so he was not in the rehearsal room with us. So he had joined it once, you know, the show was up and running. And because I was getting to the theater two hours before the show and then leaving an hour after, most actors get to the theater a half hour before the show and leave pretty much right after. So he never saw me not in Shrek, in the Shrek makeup. And so then I ended up bumping into him at a, a party or something. And it was we'd been working together for about two months and I, you know, I was like, Hey Jason, what's up? I mean, we had all kinds of inside jokes and shooting the shit and very, you know, friendly guys. And he was like, I'm sorry, who are you? And I was like, it's Eric. And he's like, Oh my God. He goes, he's like, I had never seen you. Not your Shrek. I just only assumed that that's what you looked like. So that was a, that was a funny moment. <laughs> he yeah. just assumed you were a big green ogre. Yeah. Big green ogre. It's so funny. Yeah. I wish, uh, are you going to head back to Broadway ever? We, we love going to New York and Broadway shows. And we're one of those people that hangs out after and stalks the people. Like I've met Ben Vereen, Jeff sure. Goldblum, who is uh, Lieutenant Dan, Dexter. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. I'm just, I'm trying to rattle off without pre-thinking. Yeah. But like, uh, oh, uh, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. It was like, uh, yeah. So like we're big, we're big fans and hang out after that. fans. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure that I will go back to Broadway at some point. I don't have any plans right now. And part of that, a the the Kevin show is happening, so that's you know sort of filling my schedule. But also, I have so many friends who live in New York and are Broadway working actors who have not worked over the last two years with the pandemic and have really honestly struggled. I've had a lot of sort of survivor's guilt about the fact that over the pandemic, I was able to shoot a TV show and you know my family is healthy and and so I, I've it's been you know in regards to that kind of stuff, it's not been too terrible for us. So I didn't I didn't want to like tell my agents like, hey, give me a six month uh, gig in some Broadway show because I was like, you know, let's let's let my friends who are in New York, let's let everybody get back to work for a little bit. But eventually I'm sure that I will go back to New York to do something because I mean that I came up in the theater. It's it's my first love. It's definitely something that I love to do and that I'm known for and associated with. And so when the the next right Broadway opportunity comes along, I will definitely jump at it for sure. I got to imagine there's a certain thrill to doing it. I know like with uh, the sitcom type stuff, there's an, there's an audience, but you're also doing it over and over again. And so the reactions can be different because I've seen things. Yeah. I imagine doing the play though, and, and the rush of just those reactions and knowing when yeah. someone's going to react, must it must be uh, amazing. There's no substitute for a live theatrical experience. There is something about also the fact that just the storytelling happens in a linear fashion, you know, you're starting at the beginning and ending at the ending. Whereas, you know, in TV and film, it can be so mismatched and jumbled and around and stuff. So there's something about like being an actor and stepping out and starting to tell a story and then it finishes and you can feel the audience's reaction, whether they enjoyed it or not. And it feels like we did something where sometimes TV can just feel so like, hey, we're doing this scene. I think it's funny. 
we'll see how it works in the final edit when they put it all together. So yeah, I, I love especially doing comedies and, and musicals that just you can feel an electricity and an energy in a room in a big Broadway musical that just is unlike anything else. It feels electric and it feels like it's happening in this moment for these thousand people that are in this theater and it can feel so magical. And yeah, I, I love Broadway. Love it, love it, love it. As we now move to LA in the story, I do want to just kind of mention just so everyone can look it up and Google it. You sang on on the Today Show a Kathy Lee Gifford song. So one, I was I was surprised what a, a good writer she was. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. it really shows off your voice. I mean, you had a really nice voice. You were singing for a 13-year-old boy with Tourette's syndrome. Yeah. It was great. It was just, I thought it was like, it's, it's hard to watch that and then kind of reconcile it with your Kevin character. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would I, I would say that, you know, it's funny. I Most of the parts that I have played in my career have been good guys, good, you know, good, lovable guys, which is why playing Kevin is really fun for me to sort of like play against that. And also, I think, you know, without tooting my own horn too much, I think that I have a face that is sort of like affable and like, oh, that guy seems like he'd be a nice guy, you know? And so that's why I think the stuff that I have to do and say as Kevin McRoberts on Kevin Can Fuck Himself is that much more upsetting to people because I don't think that I look like a just a real fucking asshole who's just like a real jerk. I think I look like, oh, he's, he's a nice guy. But then saying those terrible things to Annie Murphy is, you know, is what makes the character of Kevin so interesting. But yeah, that thing that I did for Kathy Lee Gifford was, uh, it was great. You know, she, um, there was like a whole series that she did of writing songs for kids who were either sick or had written in letters about issues they were going through. And then she would write a song. They'd bring in like a Broadway personality to sing. And it was super great. And that kid was super nice. And, and the song was good. It was funny because that song, you know, singing just as myself sometimes can almost be hard because as somebody who does a lot of musical theater, I'm always filtering pretty much everything through a character's lens. And to sing a song just like, hey, just sing it as your natural voice at times can be intimidating for an actor if you don't have a lot of experience with it because it's like, well, no, but what does the character think? And it's like, no, you you are the character. You just sing it in your natural voice. No accents, no funny tricks or, or gimmicks or anything. So, But no, I had a great time and uh, that was a good song. That's why I wanted to mention it. It was it was just there was something about it, something special about that performance. I wanted to make sure people looked for it. Thank you. And you're right. You do have kind of a I can get away with anything kind of face, <laughs> which is a great thing to have. Yeah. You mentioned it's fun playing an asshole version of yourself. And recently I had on the show John Glazer, who was yeah. in uh, the new Patty episode yes, yeah. of Kevin Can Fuck Himself. And we talk, I was talking to him about something similar because like on John Glazer Loves Gear, he plays an asshole version of himself. And sometimes yeah. it was an interesting thing. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm really good at it. It's scary. Right. Because <laughs> right. he's a super sweet guy as well. So it was, yeah, I, I'm sure. Yeah. This is what we were talking about. I'm like, you're so low key, John. It, it was fun. Um, he's from Michigan too. Uh, I don't really know him, but I, I met him. Sure. Yeah. Talking to him with through mutual friends. It's always a hoot when you like know someone and they show up on, you know, especially like yeah. to show up on your show and uh, had such a big part of it. It was really, really cool. Yeah. That must have been fun. Yeah. He was great. He That episode was super fun. And it was fun too, because I don't think, if I remember correctly, that he had much experience doing multicam, which is a totally different shooting style and the way to do it than 
any other type of TV. And a lot of, you know, there's lots of super hilarious people, but if you've never done multicam as an art form, it is different, especially if you don't have, or if you aren't thinking of it this way, it is much similar, much more similar to doing a play because you'd have to wait for a, a laugh. And then sometimes it doesn't come. And how do you cover that moment? And, you know, do you want to just reshoot it? And so there's a rhythm to multicam that just sounds different. And so I remember him having a moment uh, when we were shooting that they kept saying, they were like, hey, you got to wait for this laugh. You're getting a laugh on this one line. Just make sure you wait for it. And he was like, oh, okay, great. And so then the next time that we did the take, nobody laughed. And he was like, okay, great. (laughs) And it it just was uh, one of those takes that, you know, something happened. The audience couldn't hear or whatever. But we all laughed because they had just told him like, John, you got to wait for the laugh here. And then, of course, as soon as they say that, it sort of jinks it to, to not happen. Oh, that's so funny. The concept of multi-cam mm-hmm. versus it's like just a lay person who watches. You sure. know, it's like what's the difference? Yeah. That was like a, a newer concept that I've been learning. I remember there was an episode of Scrubs, which was mm-hmm. a sitcom. Yep. But they did an episode where they went full sitcom. Sure. You know what yes. you know, I don't Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the whole tone of the show, like how you perceive the show and the way it works was completely Changed. different. Yeah. yeah. So it's just it's interesting to me. So so you and Kevin can F himself. You're you're going back and forth then, right? Yeah. From multicam, which is a sitcom with you. Yep. Annie Murphy in the drama side, which is yeah. single cam. Single which cam. Is, yeah. So that's more like a movie. Yeah. And and I mean the best way to describe it to people is I mean, the pure logistics of it are in multicam, there are multiple cameras, right? You're doing it much more in a performative way. There's the fourth wall, as we call it, which would be the wall that the audience is like looking through is gone. So there's like a missing wall. It's as if that's the proscenium of a stage. You usually have three cameras, one on the right, one on the left, one in the middle, and then one that kind of is roaming. And then you have a boom sort of coming in from the top and everything is done in longer takes. You usually do the whole scene and it has usually a laugh track. It's more brightly lit. Shows that are multicam are going to basically be any sitcom pre-1990 or 95, you know, like, so you're talking Seinfeld, Cheers, All in the Family, I Love Lucy, anything like that. Those are multicam sitcoms. And then single cam, a single cam sitcom would be like The Office or 30 Rock or Parks and Rec which are going to feel more cinematic. They're shot with a single camera. Sometimes there's a second camera, but essentially one camera's point of view. You're having to shoot twice as long because you have to get everybody's coverage. So you're shooting over the shoulder of one actor, and then you have to go to behind the shoulder of the other actor so you can get that point of view. So it takes a lot longer. There's more close-ups. There's usually no laugh track. It's usually lit in a different way, depending on the mood of the scene. And it has a much more cinematic, more film-like feel. And so our show on Kevin Can Fuck Himself, we go back and forth. And the idea is anytime that Annie, our lead, Allison is the character, but played by the brilliant Annie Murphy, anytime she is with me, her husband, Kevin, I live in this sitcom world. And so then we're, we shoot everything multicam. And then as soon as I leave the room or she leaves the room without me, it snaps into single camera and the more drastic, drab kind of reality, grim reality of her life. All right, cool. Excellent. Let's talk about your uh, multi-cam experience leading up to Kevin can fuck him. Sure. So I rewatched Modern Family. You were you had an episode of Modern yeah. Family. I think that was my first gig in LA after I moved to LA. Oh, really? That's yeah. a good first gig. 
It was. It was very good. I felt very lucky. Uh, Jeff Greenberg, who cast that show, is a big theater fan. And so he had seen me in Shrek because, as I said, the tour of Shrek ended in Los Angeles at the Pantages Theater for like six weeks. And it was a great sort of like jumping off point for me because a lot of casting directors in town were able to see me on stage doing a big musical, but at least get a sense of who I was. And then once I moved here and, and started auditioning, they had some sort of frame of reference. Um, but yeah, I had a great time on Modern Family. It was like one day of work, but it was great because Jesse Tyler Ferguson, who was on the show, obviously, I knew him sort of peripherally because he had done this show called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which was a Broadway musical. And I did the first national tour of that show. And so the Broadway company had sort of seen us do a rehearsal and I'd met him a few times through that kind of stuff. So when I came on to set, even though I just had one little scene and it was with him, uh, he was really kind and, you know, introduced me to everybody as his friend from New York. And it was a, a great experience on that show because it's a, a classic for sure. Yeah. Tree salesman. You said you were That's selling me, them a yeah. Christmas tree. Yep. It, was an, it was an interesting scene, not to like overanalyze, but it was like the audience is in on you. Yeah. So when Ariel, Alex Dumpy thinks you're making this gay reference to Jesse about point because you point to this tree. Yeah. The audience knows, no, you overheard them and you were actually getting them exactly what you want. Trying wanted. to help them out. Yeah. It was almost like it was like you start to cringe a little bit because it's yeah. like, oh, God, it's it was a good lesson. in uh, don't take everything quite so seriously. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And then you had an, an excellent guest starring role in Big Bang Theory. Yeah, that was a big one. I did Big Bang Theory and I was on a very pivotal episode of Big Bang Theory because it was for those fans of the show that are listening. It was the episode when Sheldon and Amy finally kissed. It was the Valentine's Day episode on the train. And uh, it's funny because they as characters had been like dating for, I think, three seasons, but had never actually kissed because Sheldon is just has a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. And they had like held hands and that was a big deal, but they had never actually kissed. So the fans were really wanting that. It was like, you know, when Ross and Rachel finally kissed on Friends. Sure. And so I remember when we filmed the scene and they finally kissed. They have like a real passionate kiss at the end of the scene. The audience, the live studio audience went so crazy because here's the thing. Also, that was the like fourth or fifth season of that show. So at that point in a show, the people that are at the live tapings are usually mostly super fans. You know, when you have like a new sitcom, you, you just get whoever is walking down the street in Los Angeles. You give out free tickets. So people say, hey, you want to come see a live taping of a TV show in Hollywood? And people come to them, right? But once the show has been on the air for a while and is super successful, most of those tickets go to people that are huge fans. So they've, they're following the characters. They know what they're looking at and everything. And so when they finally kissed, the audience went so nuts that they couldn't use the take. Like it was so insane the way they were like ripping the seats out. They were like, oh, they're finally kissing. They were going nuts. That's awesome. And so they were like, all right, we're going to do it again, everybody. And we want you to be excited, but just chill out a little bit. Like you can't scream for so long because we won't be able to use it. But I had a great time on that show. Working with Jim Parsons was great because he's uh, just a, a master tactician in regards to comedy, which is how I think of comedy as well. Just very mathematical. I, I like to break stuff down in comedy bits and figure out why they work and why or why they don't. And so it was great working with him. The whole, the writing, the directing, the props people, the PAs, everybody had this real sense on that show of like this kind of forward energy that was like, we're making a great show. We are the number one show on TV tonight. 
right now. And everything that we do needs to be the best. Every joke has to be the best. Every prop has to be the best. Every light has to be the best. And so there was a real sense of everybody like with that focus, laser focus. And so being a part of that, even just for the week of, of filming, that was, was so cool and, and really uh, kind of inspiring, I think. It was a funny character. You, you got yeah. to really bond really well with Jim Parsons, Sheldon yeah. character. Yeah. making train noises. Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Master of uh, accents and trains. That's me. <laughs> That's me, yeah. <laughs> I could it right on your resume. Accents, <laughs> trains. Trains. So cool. So is it fair to say that your first big sitcom break then was with Kirsty? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That was, so I, I did this show called Kirsty that was on TV land uh, with Kirsty Alley, Michael Richards, Rhea Perlman, and myself uh, were the cast. The premise of the show was Kirsty Alley was like a big, Broadway diva who had given up her kid for adoption so she could have a career. I was her sort of schlubby son who comes back into her life as, you know, a grown man, but looking to reconnect with his mom. And, you know, I'm very just ho-hum, you know, middle America, like, hey, are you my mom? And she lives this big, fancy, you know, Broadway penthouse kind of life lifestyle. And it was super fun. And, you know, getting to work with Kirsty and Michael and Rhea was such an education in multicam and you know, they're obviously from Cheers and Seinfeld, their experience is the top of the top. You know, I mean, they are truly legends of the art form. So it was awesome. And each week we had amazing guest stars. I, I, we only did 12 episodes. And I think in those 12 episodes, we had our guest star list was like Jason Alexander, John Travolta, Kristen Chenoweth, George Went, Chris, uh, Kathy Griffin, Cloris Leachman. It was like every week we had just like legends coming in. It was, it was really cool. And so I loved doing that show. Uh, I loved working with those people. They really included me a lot, which was cool because it was my first big gig. And there was definitely when we would do press for the show, a lot of times people would be like, oh, we got to talk to Kirsty and Michael and Rhea. And they should because they're legends. But I was a I was a series regular on the show as well. And they always took every opportunity to make sure and Eric, bring Eric in too. You're going to be a part of this too, which I thought was really classy and cool of them to do for me. So yeah, I had a great time doing that show. That's awesome. Yeah, I rewatched the first two episodes. Yeah. And it's yeah, I mean, you you're just as much in that as any of them. I mean, yeah. that's it's it's your show. Yeah. It was a funny sitcom. I mean, Kirstie Alley is a great sitcom actress. Yeah. It was funny, Rhea Perlman. She was a little toned down from yeah. her Cheers character. Yeah. Why do you think it only lasted? Because you did. You had an amazing, I mean, they were talking about, look who's talking reunion, Seinfeld reunions, sure, yeah. Cheers reunions, right? So it was like, it was like a nonstop. Oh, I did want to ask Kristen Jenowitz. That must have been a big deal for you, right? Broadway? That was great. Yeah. It was funny because I had never worked with Kristen before, but we had so many mutual friends because of just being theater people. And we had actually the same agent. She had this, her whole first like 20 years of her career was the same agent that I had. So we had lots to bond over and we we really had a great time. I remember, you know, she was she was definitely Kristen Chenoweth at that point when she was guest starring on our show. But I felt like she even had a little sense of like, we're the theater kids. Let's just hang out together while the big Hollywood actors, you know, do whatever they got to do. Um, but no, it was great working with her. I think the reason that the show didn't go, frankly, was TV Land kind of was changing. They were tacking. They were like changing course because up to that point, TV Land had this sort of brand of Hot in Cleveland and the X's and Cedric the Entertainer had a show. 
And, and so they kind of were doing these like multicam sitcoms with multicam sitcom actors that you knew and loved and just putting them in new shows together. And that was their brand. And that's what they were doing. And we sort of joined in on that. And then the year after that, they decided to go more single camera. They started doing a show called Younger. They had a show about teachers. And so they just changed their brand, their sort of like look of their what their channel was going to be. So we were sort of a sad, unfor- unfortunate casualty of that. Because I, I think, our, you know, our numbers were actually pretty good. People that were watching it really enjoyed it and loved it. It, it was just that as a network, they were sort of changing what their vibe was going to be. Okay. I can, I can, that's unfortunate, but at least you got... You had an entire season with these. Yeah. And I mean, it was for me, it was great because not only did I get great experience and doing the art form that I love the best of of multicam sitcoms, but also, I mean, like even just like the publicity of it, you know, I was like on billboards and buses and there was a side of a building on Sunset Boulevard that was like 11 stories high that was like my face. And like, so it was like a real moment as an actor that you sort of dream of when you're little of like, look, ma, I made it, you know? And so it felt very like I'd reached the mountaintop of what I was trying to do. Obviously, there's still many things that I want to accomplish, but it was definitely a major career sort of benchmark of like, I've reached a certain level that felt very cool. Very cool. And that's that was how we met. I posted a picture and you tagged it. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then we connected. Yeah. Thank you. I do want to not mention Madagascar. You're you're in the animated series, which is yeah. pretty cool. You had an Emmy nomination for that. Yeah, you? I got How nominated cool for that? an It was so cool. It was so unexpected. Honestly, I'll, the way that I found out. So I was doing this show. I've been doing this show called Madagascar A Little Wild, which I've loved doing. It's a sequel to the Madagascar film. So there was the obviously very successful DreamWorks films with uh, like Ben Stiller, Chris Rock, David Schwimmer. The movies obviously were super successful and and fun and great. And so this show, Madagascar, A Little Wild, is a prequel. So it's all those four animals, but when they're kids, and so they're voiced by kid actors, and it's when they're living in the Central Park Zoo. And I play Antony the Pigeon from Long Island, who flies in each day and basically says like, hey, kids, there's a fire truck over on Fifth Avenue. We got to go check it out. And then we go over and look at the fire truck. And then one of the kids gets sad about something. And I say, come on, kid, you just got to be yourself. Your friends love you for who you are. You're going to be fine. And then everybody sings a song and we're happy. So it's it's a great family show, great for kids. And I love the character of Antony. It's been super fun to do. And we've been making, we've been shoot, recording the show for the last three years, two or three years. And it's my, I think this is <laughs> kind of shocking. It's my first voiceover job. I've been auditioning for voiceovers for years, but it's a hard, <laughs> a hard industry to crack into. But uh, I finally got this show, been having the best time with it. And my friend called, uh, sent or ta- he tagged me in a Facebook post saying, you just got nominated for an Emmy. And this was, you know, a couple months back. And I was like, oh, he must have got hacked. I was like, why, why would he <laughs> post that on my, no, I had no concept that like Emmy nominations were coming out or anything like that. So I texted him. I said, hey, dude, you just like posted something on my Facebook. What, what was that? He's like, dude, you got nominated for an Emmy. And I was like, for what? What are you talking about? He's like, for Madagascar. I was like, oh, the show got nominated for an Emmy. He's like, no, you got nominated for an Emmy for performing in Madagascar. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I went and checked and sure enough, there I was on the list next to like Mark Hamill and Patrick Warburton. And I was like, this is amazing. It was such a, a truly exciting recognition for something that I love and I love animation. I've always loved it. I've loved working on this show. And so to be recognized for it in that way was so unexpected and really just made me feel so, so happy and proud. 
That is so cool. That is really good. It's a fun way to have found out too. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like you hear whenever you hear like, you know, for the Oscar nominations or whatever, somebody will be like, oh, I was asleep and my my friend called me and I forgot that the nominations were coming out, which I never believe. I'm always like, no bullshit. (laughs) You knew you were in this big movie. You knew you were going to get nominated for an Oscar and you were waiting to see if it would happen. That's what I always assume. And I think that some of it is bullshit. But I swear to you, uh, for my (laughs) situation, I truly was completely caught unaware. So it was it was very exciting. That is awesome. So, all right. So on the flip side of that coin, the loving children's show, Kevin can fuck himself. Also yes. going. <laughs> I have to say, one of the great things about this show is Annie Murphy. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you're great. I, what I mean by that is a lot of times when somebody comes off a hot show, mm-hmm. you can't get the other character out of your head. Yeah. And it kind of, it, it makes it hard to watch the new show. It tempers it. Yeah. Annie Murphy's portrayal in this show, I don't think of her as the Schitt's Creek character for a second. It never takes me out of it. At no point am I like, is she about to go, ooh, Kevin? Never, never. It's like, it's a huge, you know, it's, it's incredible. It is. Because like, and not to knock Michael Richards, but like in in Kirstie, there's a little Kramer in that character, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you kind of think that kind of stuff. And so, but on this, I remember the whole time thinking, like, sometimes I would turn to my wife and like, I still can't get over the fact that this is the same person. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, what's also crazy about Annie's story is she is a brilliant actress. She really is. I think it's pretty well documented now, but some people may not know. Before she got Schitt's Creek, she had really contemplated never acting again because she was sort of at a lull in her career. She hadn't had many jobs. She has this sort of famous story of like walking out into the Pacific Ocean with like $10 in her bank account and being like, I'm done acting. I'm not, I'm releasing that dream into the ocean. I'm done with this. And then the next day she got her audition for Schitt's Creek and her life changed. She is so brilliant as an actress and her approach to this character of Alison McRoberts has been truly something so cool to witness, especially watching her navigate the two worlds of doing the multicam sitcom. And she's playing that part of the sitcom wife in the multicam stuff exactly how it should be. But then to completely release it and see the truth of it in all the single camera stuff, it's a masterclass in in acting. And so we we're all like so happy that she is the lead of our show because not only does she do a great job and make, you know, audience members excited by it and want to see more, but as a person, she's super sweet. She's just so professional and so nice and so kind. And she's super Canadian in that way. You know, she just is very like present with you. She says, please. And thank you. And looks you in the eye. And, you know, she's just, she's great. I, I can't say enough good things about her. It, it must be a fun show. What was the pitch? How did how did you get convinced? What drew you to it when Valerie Armstrong kind of came to you and said, we want to do this? It's it's uh, kind of looking at the sitcom through new eyes yeah, and, and kind of mixing these two genres together, which you do yeah. brilliantly, by the way. My friend and I, we, we have a show where we talk about TV shows yeah. like, every week. We're like it's more brilliant every week. Thank you so much. That's so great. Yeah. You know, I when it got sent to me for my agents uh, and managers, I I saw the title first and I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> what is this show? And it was to play Kevin. So I was like, I'm, I'm so curious. And I read it and I was like, okay, I think I get what this is. This makes total sense. And the sitcom stuff was written well, like a good, a good sitcom that would be on the air. And I was like, okay, I think this is cool. And so I went in for my first audition and met with uh, Valerie and Valerie Armstrong, our creator. 
brilliant creator and um and craig our our showrunner and at the time lynn who lynn shelton who sadly passed away was our uh, was going to direct the show oh no i'm sorry and so she was in our all the casting sessions and had been scouting for the pilot and everything uh when she passed away which was very sad but in that meeting you know we were talking about what the show was and what the tone of the show was. And, you know, I mentioned to them not only that I loved Multicamp sitcom and I had a lot of experience with Multicamp sitcom, but, you know, and I also <laughs> mentioned that I had literally just finished teaching a class. I, I teach a, at a few colleges around LA occasionally. And I just finished doing a semester on multicam acting. And I was telling them that I taught this class and they're like, this is brilliant. You like get it. Like, you know what we're, what we're talking about and what we're trying to emulate and show. And I was like, yes, I know that world super well. I'm super, super comfortable there. And I just wanted to make sure that they were making a show that wasn't necessarily like a full takedown of multicam and saying like, we should never make multicam sitcoms again, but was, and as soon as I said that, Valerie jumped in. She was like, no, I love multicam. I'm a huge fan of it. I don't want to destroy it. I just want to like shake it on its head and shake out the bad stuff. And I was like, to be a part of that, I'm all in because I do do a lot of multicam, which at times, to be totally honest, in Hollywood can be viewed a little bit like, oh, you're doing the schlocky broad stuff and like it's not serious acting, you know? And so, but I take a little offense to that because I think that it is an art form in and of itself. And so I, I have a lot of pride in it. And I liked that they were like, we're going to make a show that is going to be a sitcom, but also have something to say. So to get to do like the thing that I love that's in my wheelhouse, but also be a part of a cool show that had a real point of view and that would start conversations and really make people think about society and life and TV in general. I was like, I felt so excited to be a part of it. And when, you know, when I ended up getting cast, I was really overjoyed and, and uh, really, really, really excited about it. Yeah, I love it. It's so it makes you rethink sitcoms and and how the wives yeah. have been treated. Yeah, and it's so it's so brilliant when they go and it becomes so dark. I mean, it's yeah. it's the colors change, like everything changes, and it's so it's so incredible to watch. It really is. It's it's it's, it's very it's very jarring every yeah. time. I found you know even watching it after filming it all the way up through the eighth episode of the first season, every time we cut back to a different form, whether it's cutting back into multicam or cutting into the single cam, it's jarring in a good way. It just doesn't let you get comfortable. It wants you to sort of feel that like, oh, geez, there's always another side to what we're looking at. The set, I think, I think everyone probably sees something different in the set. <laughs> I see all in the family. Yeah. The the, the two big ones, the yeah. Like that really does that for me. Sure, yeah. like, that makes me think. And the couch, I feel like it's just like a bad flower print. You know, that's kind of Roseanne-ish. Yeah, a lot of people have pointed out either All in the Family, Everybody Loves Raymond. A lot of people think it looks like that. And I think that's a credit to our our designers who really were trying to honor those shows of the past. They, they, they wanted it to feel familiar in that way, you know? And another cool part about the set is that nothing changes when we film the multicam to the single cam. Like the proportions of everything stay the same other than we bring in the fourth wall and a ceiling. But other than that, it really, it's the same room. It's just shot and lit differently. And so it feels drastically different between the two, the two forms. It's incredible how it's like all of a sudden you're watching a completely different show. Somebody yeah. will do, somebody will do like a, uh, like a Godfather cut where they'll string all the sitcoms. Together. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can't wait to see that. That'll be good. The Kevin can fuck himself saga. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, is it true that the whole the the use of the name Kevin and all that is 
is based on the slight of Kevin James. Yeah. A condemnation yeah. of that show. Okay. Yeah, I think, and it's uh, for anybody who's unaware, at least when it was originally written by Valerie, the when she wrote it, it was because of two things, but one of them being Kevin James had this show called Kevin Can Wait that uh, was his sort of follow-up to King of Queens. And uh, it was on CBS. And between the first and second season, Aaron Hayes, who played his wife on the show, they decided to kill her off, which is bad. But what sort of got Kevin James into more hot water was his response. He was being interviewed about it by, I think, the New York Times. And he said, they said, why'd you kill off the wife character? And he said, we were just like running out of storylines. So we killed her off. And then they never really like the characters never addressed it. The kids never were like, where's mommy or I'm sad mommy's dead or, you know, like they just glossed over it with such disrespect of that character that it pissed a lot of people off. One of them being Valerie Armstrong, our writer. And she decided, you know, her initial pitch was like, I want to see a CBS sitcom where the doofus husband is being himself. But as soon as the wife leaves the room, we go to single camera and it's super dark and we see her reality. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what the show is. So while it was originally sort of the jumping off point was that moment with Kevin James, it doesn't continue to be about that. That I think was just sort of the initial impetus to it. But yeah, so it's not something like we're constantly trying to go after Kevin James at this point. I think that was more just uh, the jumping off point. Right, right. I meant it was, it was the inspiration. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The creative inspiration. <laughs> yeah. So I know I know that season two, there's a season two. So it got picked up. Yes. Very excited. Season two. I'm not going to ask you because I'm sure you couldn't tell me anyway. <laughs> so we, we won't go down that five minute route. <laughs> I'd love to tell you. But, <laughs> yeah, but I I, I'm excited to see where it does go. There's a lot of different ways it can. So it's, yeah, I'm excited yeah. to see that. For every, anyone that needs to catch up, there's eight episodes. It's on AMC Plus, maybe AMC as well. It's on AMC Plus. Uh, it's on, if you have AMC, you can watch it You know, through your on-demand uh, of that. It is now available on Amazon Prime in like England and Australia and I think India or something like that. I'm not sure if it's on Amazon Prime in America yet. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, you can get it through AMC Plus's AMC's new app that allows you sort of their streaming service. Uh, uh, check it out. It's eight episodes. They're each about 45 minutes long. They really flow nicely together. Uh, it's a good binge if you're looking for a you know Saturday afternoon, something to watch. Uh, the one thing that I'll say is that it is jarring at the beginning. But if you push through like one, I, uh, some shows you really need like five episodes to get accustomed to it. I think by the end of the first episode, you'll get the feeling of what we're doing and, and uh, it'll hopefully hook you in for, for the full run. Yeah, everyone definitely check it out if you haven't. It's definitely the most unique show, which you don't see these days. It's everything is a reboot or a rehash. <laughs> yeah. This is an actual unique concept that I'm sure at some point someone's going to imitate this. Yeah. So get in on the ground floor. Watch Kevin. <laughs> watch if you haven't. Kevin can fuck himself. Eric, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so fun. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. This was great. Great talking with you. How can people keep up with you on the social medias? They can follow me. My Instagram is at Eric Pete, E-R-I-C-P-E-T-E. My Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't do Twitter as much, but I'm Eric Peterson 44 on Twitter. And also you can follow my fashion Instagram. Um, uh, this is a total little sidebar, but I love clothes and, and dressing and I love it's called at the portly gentleman on Instagram, the portly gentleman, all one word. It's where I sort of uh, post stuff about fashion and, and cool suits and stuff like that that I like. 
That's awesome. I'll put links to all that in the show yes, notes <laughs> and some of your Broadway highlights. Thank you. I'm proud of myself for not accidentally calling you Kevin at any point during the interview. <laughs> Great. This is good. Good job, Jeff. Good job. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome, Jeff. This was great. Thanks. Oh, wait, oh, oh, wait, Eric, one more thing. Ah, he's gone. I totally forgot to tell him Shrek was looking for him. I'm sure he'll be fine. But in the meantime, all of you guys, feel free to warn him at his Twitter, <laughs> at his Twitter account or on Facebook. Also, please check out Kevin Can Fuck Himself on AMC. You can stream all the episodes now. It's really, really great. I promise. I was a huge fan right from the beginning. Loved every second of it. It's a really, really unique show. I'll put links to everything in the show notes and to some of the performances that I mentioned during the interview with Eric, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm excited for you to experience all of that. In the meantime, here we are coming to the end of episode 74. Can you believe it? We're almost at the end of another episode. And that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the world of hashtag roundup. Follow hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app on Google Play or iTunes and get notified every time a hashtag game starts. Play along and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dawaskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. Imagine being at a dinner saying, hello, do you know my tweet was on live from Detroit, the Jeff Dawaskin show? Everyone will be like, let me pick up the bill. This is a time to celebrate. So you're probably all wondering, what's this week's hashtag? This week's hashtag is a hat tip to Eric Peterson's fine work as Shrek and Shrek the musical and the fact that Shrek is looking for him. Hashtag fake fairy tale facts is the hashtag from hash fake facts, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. This is a fun game where you get to literally make up anything fake about the topic. What do you know about fairy tales? Nothing? Well, that's okay because this is hashtag fake fairy tale facts. Here's some examples for inspiration and then head to Twitter and tweet your own. Here we go. Hashtag fake fairy tale facts. Humpty Dumpty was pushed off the wall for trying to start an uprising. Goldilocks had four failed marriages over her issue with nothing ever being quite right. Two of the three little pigs bought their houses from Ikea and just assembled them poorly. Ah, the truth has come out. Pinocchio was known to lie on purpose. Mm-hmm. These really are some amazing hashtag fake fairy tale facts. The seven dwarves were really Snow White's kiddos. She was looking for a prince to be her baby stepdaddy. Cinderella prefers to be called Cindy. Old Mother Hubbard was only like 38. None of the princes turned out to be all that charming. The old woman who lived in the shoe is actually Canadian and she didn't even know what to do about all those kids. Cinderella is mad at Rihanna for never returning her Ella, Ella, Ella. Prince Charming was a lousy kisser. Remember, legally we cannot be held accountable for these hashtag fake fairy tale facts. The Princess and the Pea was originally a body training book. Red Riding Hood lost her street cred when it was discovered she lived in the Hamptons. Turns out Sleeping Beauty suffered from severe narcolepsy. Who knew? Goldilocks is about investment strategies. Too hot? Get out. Too cold? No good. Just take what's just right. And our final fake fairy tale facts tweet. Rapunzel was urged to cut her iconic locks at the recommendation of the royal chiropractor. Oh! 
All right. Those are some amazing hashtag fake fairy tale facts tweets. Tweet your own. I'll look for it on the Twitter. Can't believe we're at the end of another episode. I want to thank my friend Casey Ryan Plot for his amazing celebrity voices. I want to thank my special guest, Eric Peterson, for sharing all his amazing stories with us. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time. I can assure you we will not let this injustice stand. We will rise and we will find you. Or I am not. Who's? And booze, Which I am.